You're listening to the Journey to Launch podcast, The Cost of Being Black in America, with Sean Rochester. T minus 10 seconds. Welcome to the Journey to Launch podcast with your host, Jamila Souffrant. As a money expert who walks her talk, she helps brave journeyers like you get out of debt, save, invest, and build real wealth. Join her on the journey to launch to financial freedom in, in five, four, three, two, one. Hey, 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 journeyers. Welcome to the Journey to Launch podcast. Now, before we hop into this episode, because let me tell you something, <laughs> this episode will be I believe one of my most important episodes that I've ever done today. But before we hop into that, I want to say thank you for tuning in. This is episode 137. If you want to get any of the show notes, want to find out more about what we're talking about, go to journeytolaunch.com slash episode 137. But as I was saying, I've done a lot of episodes before this one, and I really believe this is the most important conversation that I've had on the podcast ever to date. And it's something that you need to hear. And so if you heard the title of it, it's called The Cost of Being Black in America. And while my guest Sean and I will be discussing that, just that, right, being black in America and the cost of it, this episode is not only for black people. Everyone needs to hear this. So regardless of if you're black or white or a person of color that is not black, you need to hear this and you need to hear it because what we'll talk about today has everything to do with the fabric of our society, culture, and world. You know, I first saw Sean's talk on YouTube. He has a talk on YouTube at where he did at Google and it was fascinating and it was about his book. So the cost of being black in America is we're talking about his book and his Google talk was about his book. And when I clicked play to watch the YouTube video, I was like, I'm just going to watch a couple minutes just to kind of get a gist of this. And literally, I could not stop watching because every word, everything he said, kept me hanging on for more because I was learning things that I didn't know I needed to learn. I was relearning things I thought I knew and had no idea. And I immediately knew I had to get him on the show. And so I've actually referenced the black tax on this show before. And I've seen it in articles mentioned that It's more of like the context of black professionals who provide support to other family members, which then inhibits their ability to build wealth. And while that may be true, that's just a small part of what the black tax is. And actually that experience of providing support to people in your family, if you are the one earning a lot, is not just exclusive to black people. Other races and people and cultures experience that. It goes a lot deeper than just that. And we're going to talk about what exactly that is. And so we're going to talk to Sean and I can't wait to hop into the episode, but I wanted to just read an excerpt from the description of his book. So you got a sense of what we're going to be talking about. And I want to let you know that we didn't have enough time to talk about all the things we should and need to talk about. Hope this is just a starter conversation, but here's just an excerpt. In his book, The Cost of Being Black in America, Sean basically talks about the massive financial burden of Black American households that dramatically reduces their ability to leave a substantial legacy for future generations. He lays out an extraordinarily compelling case which documents the enormous financial costs of current and past anti-Black discrimination on African American households. The Black tax provides the fact pattern, data, and evidence 
to substantiate what Americans, African-Americans have long experienced and try to convey to an unbelieving American public. Backed by an exceptional amount of research, Mr. Rochester not only highlights the extraordinary cost of the discrimination that African-Americans currently face, but also explores the massive cost of past discrimination to explain why after 400 years, Black Americans only own 2% of American wealth. Now, let's just hop into this conversation. Without further ado, hope you enjoy. Okay. Hey, Journeyers. I'm really, really excited to have Sean Rochester on the podcast to talk to us today because he is talking about a very important, not just topic, this is a realistic and real thing for us, especially uh, people of color, especially Black people, which is the Black tax. And Sean knows all about that. He has a passion. We're talking about personal finance in general, but he's written this amazing book and has given amazing talks, which I'll link to in the episode show notes about the Black tax. And so I can't wait for us to dive in, Sean. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me onto the podcast. I'm looking forward to our our conversation and I'm super excited that you were able to see some of my work and and I look forward to some great things. Yeah. So first, I really want to talk about what the black tax is, because I will raise my hand and admit that I actually did not really completely understand it at first as a black person. Right. Like I didn't completely understand it, even on this platform. I've had interviews and conversations with people and it's come up, but the way we discussed it was more in the sense of as a person who's ambitious or the most, the person who has risen the most in the family, having this responsibility of taking care of people in their family. And I feel like that's a disservice to what actually the black tax is because the funny thing or the thing that happened when I did talk about it in that way, I got a couple of responses from people who were not black who said, Hey, Like that happens in like all cultures, like that happens to me too. Like I'm the only one in my family that has this degree or makes this much money. And I have the pressure of taking care of people too. So it's not just a black thing. And I think like when we don't know what it means and we use it in that way, it undermines what it actually is because watching your presentation, like going through kind of your work, I realized like, wow, this is something that needs to be heard by everyone, not just black people about what actually this is and why it's real and to talk more about it. So can we talk about first exactly what the black tax is? The black tax is the financial cost of discrimination against black people that is driven by conscious and unconscious anti-black bias, either from individuals or institutions or organizations, you know, across the country. So it's the manifestation of of anti-Black bias in ways that has a financial impact on us and our families and our community. The Black tax that people often talk about, which is what you just referred to, is a subset of that. And that has been exacerbated by this much larger Black tax, which has been happening here in this place where we live from 1619 up into the present. So while other people face that, What we are encountering is of a different kind and of a different order of magnitude. Yeah. And I just think it's so important to have that distinction and to talk about and like you have data, which we'll go through about it, like what it actually, how it actually impacts the bottom line for Black people. Because I think when we use it in such a general way where other people can say, wait, that's not just you, like we have that too, it kind of diminishes the reality of it because then people can write it off and say, well, that happens to everyone. That's not just something that affects you. So I think this is so important to talk about what 
the black taxes, which you generally explain, but like how it actually impacts us like financially and these unconscious and conscious biases, like what they actually are. So can we talk a little bit about how it seeps into our everyday lives, our, into our pockets and how it uh, impacts us? Yeah. So there are a myriad of ways. So if you think about the job search, right, and, and a lot of people may be familiar with the, the research that was done at the University of Chicago back around 2002. And I, I recall when it came out because I was at Chicago Booth, right, at the time. And they wanted to get a sense of discrimination in kind of the, in the job search market. So they sent out a number of over 5,000, I think, resumes to different companies and institutions across the country. And the resumes were the same, except some were stronger than others in terms of uh, the quality of the institution that people went to school with, depth of experience, uh, quality of the experience, so on and so forth. But what they did was they gave some of the resumes black-sounding names and some of them white-sounding names. So you would have like Emily for the ladies and then Jamal for the men, right? And then Brandon and Lakeisha. But everything on the resume is the same. So they sent it off. And the first thing that they noticed was that if you had a Black-sounding name, same exact resume, 50% less callbacks. So your ability to get that opportunity to come in and talk about your background and the fit and how you could be great for the institution, like you don't even get that shot, right? And that's just kind of based on, on the name. The other thing that they noticed was if you looked at the quality of the resume, so as the quality of the institution increased, the depth, length of experience, and, and so on and so forth, for the resumes that had a white sounding name, they saw a 30% increase in callbacks, which would make more sense, right? You perceive this person to be a stronger candidate. Let's talk to that person. I want to uh, talk to them more so. But when it was a black sounding name, there was a zero increase, zero statistical difference. So as the strength of the candidate increased, the interest in talking to them about the job did not, right? Which is a particularly remarkable thing because the job allows you to provide income, right? For your family and allows you to develop incremental skills and to deploy the skills that, that you already, uh, that you already have. The other thing that was very interesting is that they noticed that the effects were the same regardless of the size of the company. So this existed in the large companies as well as the very small ones. It existed in the private sector as well as in the public sector, governments, and the like. It was pervasive across. And then um, the you know, University of Arizona did a, did a study, or Arizona State University did a study, and what they found was like white candidates with a felony conviction got higher callbacks than black co candidates with the you know, college degree, no felony conviction. So what's happening here is they're measuring how biases are playing out in decisions that people are making. And there's a significant economic impact. Now, ordinarily, someone would say, well, you know, we're being too sensitive, right? Like everything's not about race. And surely there was some other rationale. But what these researchers are doing is they're isolating for racialized impacts. They're taking all of that into, into consideration. Now, if you said, okay, all right, I get that. Maybe that's just regular folks, right? But we're not going to be the regular folks. We're going straight to the top, you know? So they did some research to look at what was happening in the legal field. So they created a memo. And in the memo, they inserted, I think it was 22 different types of errors. So error in 
facts, right? The interpretation of the facts, errors in grammar, spelling, so on and so forth. And, and then they sent off this legal memo to two sets of groups, which were law par- partners at major law firms. And when the partners thought it was a Black person who wrote it, they gave uh, the score of 3.1 out of 5. So, so that's about 62%, right? Which is a failing rate. But when they thought it was a white person who wrote it, they gave them a 4 out of 5, which is 80%, right? Nothing to write home about, but it's a passing grade for something that's full of errors. The second thing is they noticed that there were seven errors in grammar and spelling. So these are things that you can catch easily. And when they thought it was a white person, they caught about three of those. When they thought it was a black person, they caught six out of seven. So it's a hundred percent difference. And the level of scrutiny and errors that they would detect in the same exact work. The only thing different is about who the employer thought actually wrote it. Now, the implication of this, because you can, you know, you can live a good life as a lawyer, is that if you're under that level of scrutiny for the same exact work, if the interpretation of your work product is wholly different, that could mean it's more difficult for you to get placed on the right projects to help you get visibility and to be seen and potentially to get on a partner track. And the difference for the person who has the same exact capability, this is not elevating somebody who's not on the level between partner and non-partner, could be well over $11 million over the course of a career. So the impact, the economic impact is really massive, right? What does that do for that family? What does that do for that community, for the church that that person may or may not be a part of, for the nonprofit boards that they sit on? It has a reverberating impact across our communities. And it's very important that people understand that these bias levels are quite high and that there's an economic impact to it. It's just not how we feel about it. This is affecting legacy. And that's, in my view, unacceptable. Yeah. And I love that there are facts to this and research because a lot of times we're deemed as too sensitive and making everything about race and what happens is like, it's not imagined. Like, you know, I worked in corporate America for a long time before I started to do this full time. And so I've seen it firsthand. I've felt it a bit. And it's sometimes it's so small and you can't necessarily, especially when you're in it, prove it in the moment. And so with these kind of studies, is it's interesting because I think what's also important is that if you think about it, people will say, well, we're not intentionally doing this. We're not intentionally holding Black people back. And what do you say to that? Because I think that subconscious, that what is not conscious, what's happening, it still seeps in and it's insidious to our growth economically and as people of color, as Black people. So there are two types of biases or two modes. The first is conscious. The second is, is, is unconscious or implicit, they like to call it. So if you do some research, which was done by like, I think it was Chicago, Michigan, uh, Stanford and the Associated Press, did some research back in like 2012 to get a sense of like the bias levels across the electorate. And for explicit bias, which is, I know exactly what I'm doing. I know exactly how I'm feeling. And there's no two ways about it. The levels of bias were around, it was about 51% of five and 10. Uh, the levels of subconscious bias when they did the work, was was about 56%, so almost 6 in 10. So you've got half the population that they that they surveys, which represents the country, has got an explicit bias. And you got almost 6 in 10 that have an implicit bias. And if you look at the work that Harvard's done, because they have this online test that you may be familiar with, it's called like 
the implicit association tests, right? The IAT. And many people have have taken this test. Um, some of the last numbers I saw were that over 20 million people to date have, have taken various levels of IAT. So they started looking at racial subconscious bias, right? What they call it is automatic white preference. For that massive, large pool of people who, who've taken that test, you know, since the mid to late 90s, maybe even longer, it's about 75% of the people have an, they call it an automatic white preference. It's just a wonderfully nice way of saying anti-black bias. When you think about it, that's a very high number. That's three quarters. Yeah. So the point there is twofold. I never declare what kind of bias it is because I, I don't know what's in your head. I don't know what's in your heart, nor do I really care. What I'm interested in is in the impact and the financial impact. And there's two modes. There's the explicit, that is the implicit. And those levels range from high to very high. The levels are actually so significant, it gives you the very strong sense and data backed and the data backs this that the normal state is actually automatic white preference. People believe the normal state is egalitarianism. It's all equal. And then if you do something to upset that, somehow it's it's unfair. But the normal state is automatic white preference. It's not egalitarianism. And when we talk about white preference, it's more of what the study showed that you talked about is thinking that um, they prefer to have a white person do the job or they prefer or think that the white person is better. Like, what is that exactly? So what the test is detecting is your what you associate positive and negative things with. So the test is saying that it's easier for people who take it to associate positive things with a white person than it is with a black person. It's more difficult for them to associate a positive thing with, with black people. The issue becomes how does that manifest itself in our daily lives? Because whether or not a person knows about it has nothing to do with whether or not it's happening whether it's the person who's feeling it or the, or the perpetrator of it. And this is where it starts to creep up in decisions that are really important. Like you're making loan decisions about what business gets a loan. And it's very clear that when you look at uh, black enterprises or black firms and, and they have the same credit profile as a white firm, yet they're twice as likely to be denied. And yet when they do get credit, on average, their credit is 100 basis points higher the exact same credit profile. So your cost of capital, your cost of operating that business from a financial perspective is higher. That's how this bias manifests itself. Now, if you're a white person, you're getting a lower cost environment. Now, it doesn't require your permission. It doesn't require that you're aware of it. You could be totally against it. That's irrelevant. It's still happening. And it's happening in your favor. And it's happening uh, where it's much more costly for Black people in particular. Yeah. And I wonder too, right? So the population or the people who were surveyed or who are taking part of this, are they also a diverse range of people? So not only is it people in power and white people maybe have these biases, but it's also people in general, like fellow Black people, right? We all have it. All of us have it. That's an American statement. We have it. We actually have two black taxes, which I talk about in the book. We have the external black taxes imposed upon us, both conscious and unconscious. But we also have an internal version that we impose upon ourselves. And as you may know, the way that we propagate that is through commerce. 
will we'll be very helpful when it comes to like careers, jobs, and education, all that kind of stuff. But when it comes to commercial activity, that's where that bias bears its, its ugly head. I definitely want to talk about that when we start talking about what we can do about that, because I think it's fascinating because it is something that we do like as black people to our, you know, our own people. And I know this goes back to our history in this country, which you talk about in the book, you talk about in your talks. And so I do want to talk about like the impact of slavery, what that has done and like how even since we, you know, been technically freed, how it hasn't been so long ago and how all those events right, have led us to where we are. Because just paying like devil's advocate that, again, these studies were so long ago, we've come so far. Are you being too sensitive? Like hard work, hard work. So I do want to just go back to where we come from and like why it is still important and impactful today. Right. So one of the things I I try to do in the book and certainly do in my talks is um, answer like an important question, which is why is it that after 400 years, over 40, 45 million African-Americans only own about 2% of U.S. wealth. So we got to quantify what we mean by come so far. So from 0% to 2% is the farness that we're referring to, right? Normally people don't think about it kind of in that way. They're actually not aware that our ownership of wealth is so small to begin with. So that's one thing for us to, to think about and to examine. The other question becomes when people say, listen, hey, this was such a long time ago, as you just said, there was plenty of time to do well. Like you got to get over it. The implication when you say that is that the thing or the trauma was small uh, relative to the time. And I, so I go back and I say, all right, well, let's, let's kind of talk about that because while there are a myriad of things that we could never measure about the horror of that period of, of chattel slavery, you can look at the economics behind the labor that was extracted from millions of people over a 250 year period. And those numbers range anywhere from like 24 trillion all the way up to 97 trillion, right? These, these are huge numbers. So even if you're assuming the truth is somewhere in the middle, you're at around $50 trillion. What does that 50 trillion represent? Labor extracted from those people. That's the value of That they were not paid. Absolutely were not paid. Right. Or, or, the, or what we could really say that they paid for. Because what people don't realize is that in a capitalist society, nothing is free. Someone is paying for it. They paid for it. They weren't paid. They are the ones who paid the price uh, for it. The other thing that we can look at valuing is you could say, okay, if you, if you looked at 1860, and you could say, well, how much were those people worth? Because they're the most liquid asset in the country. They are traded on open markets. There's a price if they're old or young, male, female, able-bodied or lame, right? So what was that price? And it turns out that their value was so large that you either have to measure it in terms of total wealth of the country, which was between 16 to 20% of the total wealth of the country, or GDP, which is national income, which is one to two years of GDP. So if you start to put that in today's dollars, national wealth is about 85 trillion. So if you look at 16 to 20% of that, you're talking 14 to 17 trillion. If you take an average, you're at 55, you're at 15.5 trillion. If you look at it from an income perspective, a national income, GDP, GDP is 19 trillion a year. So, that, so their value is somewhere between 19 and 38 trillion, one to two years. If you take an average of that, you're at 28.5. So that's two different ways to value those people. And if you take an average of those, you're at 22 trillion. 
like there's there's no two ways. Like if you go back to the like 1831, I think it's like John Adams, he's making an argument against why you shouldn't free slaves. And one of the arguments that he makes is the capital base associated with them is so large. He's saying it's $1.2 billion at that time. If you inflate that to t- today's dollars, you can approach, an, uh, again, $50 trillion. I mean, it, we start to be some really, really, really big numbers. So the point there is, when you said it was a long time ago, you're implying that it was a small matter. If you or me, we lose like 25 cents, not a big deal relative to what we have. If we lose 24 million, really big deal. And that's the power of kind of putting some numbers behind it and saying, like, this is what was done. It didn't go to those folks. It was reinvested in infrastructure and systems processes that they didn't benefit from in any way, shape, or form. And if you say, well, and they didn't leave bondage with economic resources. And as we all know, in a capitalist society, the worst position you can be in is to have no capital. You are not free unless you have capital, no matter how you try to convince yourself that that's the case, or we try to convince ourselves, right? And they left that position with no capital. It wasn't like when the Israelites left Egypt, they left rich and they could build a new society. Descendants of black people left in a position where it was just like, what you're going to do is you're going to work menial labor because that's what we need and that's what's necessary. Yeah, it's powerful. And I'm so thankful that you're able to communicate it in this way so clearly and with facts. One of the things that really when people talk about slavery and, you know, the fact that, okay, like you said, like our ancestors were freed, but they were freed into what? And you talk about this in one of your talks about essentially they were still like slaves. I mean, they still were owned because they now had to work to buy back almost like their freedom. They they would get into debt because they couldn't pay. They weren't getting paid enough. Can you talk about that cycle that occurred? Because I think sharing just like the after effects, like, and how we can't just look at it as when slavery ended because it, it persisted under a different name for a long time, different names actually, you know? Yep. So there were global ramifications to the emancipation of black people in, in America because it, ca- it causes gigantic cotton famine because cotton was the most important commodity in the entire world. And the U.S., dominated 80% of that market. This is just to get an idea of how important, and that came from these 4 million people in the South, right? 80% of the market. It's 61% of U.S. exports. The full economic value of the South, 50% of it is those 4 million people. There is no argument, position, or conception that Black people held in bondage were not immensely critical to everything that's that's been created in in the country. The numbers are just too large to to disaggregate. So when they're emancipated, well, what is the need? The need is you got this global cotton famine and it's affecting the whole industrialized world. So you need to put these people back to work. And how do you go about doing that? Now, there is no distribution of land. We all know about the 40 acres of mule and that never happened, right? Although they did distribute it to land to white folks to the Homestead Act. So what's the need? The need is readily available, massive labor. So they shifted into a this thing they call like this Jim Crow system, which is let's break these mega plantations into smaller lots. Let's have Black families settle on those lots. We will make an agreement with them 
that if you agree to plant cash crops, that at the end of the harvest, you will share any portion of the crop, share cropping, right? Now, it is a actual contract, it's agreement. But what is the challenge? How do they lock people into it? First challenge is these folks don't have economic resources. And it takes quite a bit of energy, effort, and resources to go from now to the end of the crop. So who provides all of that? The white farmer provides the tools and the clothes, food, shelter. They provide the seed. They provide everything at rates, credit rates up as high as 70% per year. They're setting your whole cost structure, right? You're borrowing and all your costs are tied to, to them. The other component of it is that when the harvest comes and you take the crops to market, the white farmer is the market. So they tell you what your crops are worth. So they control your revenue and they control your cost structure, which means that they control your profit. Now, if you're lucky, your profit's going to net to zero. If you're unfortunate and they don't want you to work for someone who might be more generous than they are, then your profit's going to be negative, which means you're going to owe them. And they're going to roll that into the following year. And now you're in perpetual debt servitude. Now, we have this Hollywood mindset that if it were me and I was in that situation, I wouldn't put up with that. I'd walk away from it. But what they did to ensure that this system was like hermetically sealed, there was no out, is they wrapped nefarious laws around the situation. So if you chose not to participate in that, then they could hit you with vagrancy laws, which said if you can't prove that you're a landowner or that you're gainfully employed, they could charge you with a criminal offense, put you in a state or county jail. Now, if you said, well, I might do it, but if I, on second thought, I don't really want to do it now because this is nefarious, right? If you break that contract, then they put contract enforcement laws in place, which said if you break that employment contract, we can charge you the criminal offense, put you in a state or county jail. And if you're in a state or county jail and you're just like, I'm just going to stay here and I still don't want to do the work, then they can lease you back out to that same white farmer through convict leasing or to a private corporation in the first place. They made sure that there was no possible out for you. And under the conditions of convict leasing, you have a one in two chance of death. And what I try to help people understand is it is not this thing about the, the strength and the heart of the individual. And if it was me, it would be different. It was designed to have this outcome. It had been thought through on multiple levels. These people didn't have an out and it wasn't a choice. And during this period of time, 4,000 Black people were killed by their fellow citizens via lynching, public execution by their fellow citizens. This was serious business, right? Your life and your family's life was in your own hands. And it's, it's not really taught in the curriculum. It's not taught in our institutions, which is why people think it wasn't so bad or think there was somehow a choice in, uh, in, in the matter. The consequences of going against these systems were a unimaginable level of brutality for all to see. It's a very sad and kind of traumatic thing to think through, but people need to understand it because there's an economic impact to it. How are people accumulating any wealth during that period of time? Extremely difficult to do that. And it helps to inform 
why you have so many people in the situation that we're in today, because wealth is temporal. It increases over time if it's employed well. Yeah, it compounds. And so it's important to understand this history and it brings us to today. So not only did we start at a disadvantage, right? Now we're at this point where we are seemingly given equal opportunity. And I think it's important that we talk about and we kind of discussed in the beginning was this implicit bias, even if someone's not consciously doing it, happens still where it impacts the bottom line. And so to understand now, like what we can do, because the biggest thing, like, so for me, you know, I'm from, I, I know you're Caribbean. Where are you from? Barbados. Barbados. So I'm Jamaican and I have like, you know, fellow immigrant friends. And then I have people who were like, really like they were family is from here, from the South. And in general, right, like we're taught and I was taught like education like is the key and you do your best and and you work hard. And so, you know, I, I graduated, got a good job, worked hard, like invested, saved it all the right things. And so sometimes, right, when you you look at like a trajectory of like someone like myself, it's like, all right, hard work and pull yourself up from your bootstraps. Right. Provided you have the boots. You look at it and you say, OK, so now that we are in a better position, right, than we were back then why has not much changed? And so people who are looking at us or, and, and say like, Hey, like you can do more, you can do better. You can try harder. It's not, it's no longer like the government or the man's fault. What do you say to that? Because I am one of self-responsibility and that's what I'm going to teach my kids that, you, you know, you can't wait for the system to fix itself. So you do have to try hard and harder maybe than the next person. And that's just what reality is. But well, how do we talk through that and like help people understand that sometimes even with the hard work, you're still not on the same playing field. Yeah. So I don't think hard work's a problem. We got people who walk like six miles to get water in different countries. We got people who work 10 hour days making minimum wage, right? People are working really hard. The issue is what yield does that hard work generate for you? And that is all about where is that hard work taking place? Because if you look at, if you go, if we go back to, 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 to the data, because at the end of the day, this is all based on economics and capital and access to resources. So if you go back and you look at people who come from communities with persistent poverty, and you compare that to people who come from communities with, with significant resources, the young person who comes from a community with persistent poverty is 99% less likely to complete a four-year degree. It's not about hard work, 99% likely. That means one out of 100. And that's because of massive resource differentials, right? 99% less likely. The second thing that, that we know is academic achievement has very high correlation to economic resources. Almost every measure, they'll measure like, well, they'll say, well, uh, what's the amount of segregation that's happening, right? And segregation is nothing more than wealth distribution between Black and white people or white people and non-white people, right? They will be like, what's the level of poverty? Again, that's an economic measure. Or they would say, well, what's the median or average kind of family income? Again, it's an economic measure and a proxy for wealth. The higher those things are, the more well people tend to do. The resources in your community and your family has much more to do with how well you're going to do than your hard work because your hard work is magnified because of, of those economic resources. So the data is, is very clear about that. I, I try to help people understand like intelligence, capability, 
skill, all that stuff follows a normal distribution. It's Gaussian, which means across population, ethnicity, whatever, you got 15% significantly above average. I call them the ultra brilliant. We all like to think we're part of that group. You got 70% that are that are kind of in the middle, right? And then you got 15% that are dramatically lower. What wealth and access to resources does is to allow you to develop more of your existing capability. So the problem in, in this country and in others is that people mistake a monopoly on the resources that develop talent and skill for a monopoly on talent and skill. It's a significant difference. And if we don't understand the role that the environment plays, we're going to keep blaming individuals for the outcomes that that environment actually creates. Mm, yeah. That's kind of my thought on that. So what can we do about it? We have significant research that shows how these biases, conscious and unconscious, affect us to this day, right? So we have the statistics and we have the numbers about what we were not given and like, the work and the kind of capital that we were as our history as slaves in this country or Black people in this country, what that has done and how we've lagged having wealth and the opportunity that we were not provided. So now we're at the point where, okay, we now still see that there's still implicit and explicit bias. And I love the fact that we talk about the two Black taxes, like not only of others, but on ourselves that we that we do. Absolutely. Now what, right? So we, we come this far and we're still here. So what can we do? What are the solutions for people, for companies, for the environment, for the government? And can it be fixed? Yeah, it can be fixed. So this, this is a couple of things. The first part of the challenge is that we, collective we, want silver bullets. What's the one thing that we can do to t- correct this stuff tomorrow? It doesn't, it doesn't happen. It's not going to happen because there was no one thing that was done to get us into the situation, right? It's a compendium of things that we kind of have to work on in parallel and in series. So that's just kind of overarching. The it that I'm trying to be specific about, because there's many it's that we can work on, are things that we have a gap in jobs, businesses, and capital. And it's the gap in those things that are driving almost all the socioeconomic issues that we're seeing. So I advocate for this economic framework that I call PhD, which is purchase, hire, and deposit in ways that create jobs, create um, and expand uh, businesses, and provide capital in, in our community. The P is about what as individuals or families, what we purchase for corporations, governments, institutions, that's about their supply chain. So we can have a stimulative uh, impact on businesses by procuring their products and services. Now, we're we're all familiar with this $1.2 trillion of consumer spend that that we do. It is bantered about. The number is probably higher now, but about 2% of that actually goes to Black enterprise. 98% of it doesn't. So we're really, despite the rhetoric, we're really not spending our economic resources on our, on, our, on our businesses. So one of the first things to do is to start to shift our demand for our own uh, businesses. And, and it's, it's simple stuff. As If we're in a position to buy a home, if we're so blessed and so well capitalized, and, and we start to go down that path and, and do those things, you know, do we use a Black realtor? Do we use a Black broker, right, when it comes to, like, insurance? If we have to fix up the house, do we use a Black contractor, electrician? plumber, carpenter, so on and so forth, right? Those are things that we have control over. Those are things that are high dollar spend items that can have massive impacts on those service providers. In terms of the supply chain spend, if you look at uh, corporations and governments, 
um, less than 2% of their, their spend tends to go to black firms, not minority firms, black firms. So when you look at government supply chain spend, at that number, I think, is probably approaching $600 billion. It's massive. And then when you start talking about corporate supply chain spend, it's massive. The, the issue is if you want to show solidarity or to help the economics advancement of, of Black folks, I'm saying do it through economics, right? Do it through procuring your services from Black firms. You can have a massive stimulus. You could create 15,000 jobs when, when you do that. Who are you buying your products and services from? So can I interject? Because I think that's really key. And when you first started talking, you know, I'm envisioning as a Black person to give money or to buy from and to put more money into the pockets of fellow Black, like business owners and service providers. But it also would require like non-Black people to do that, right? So this is like, we're not, and it's the same with the companies, right? We're talking about everyone wanting to do that. And I guess the thing is, like, what's the motivation? Like we, because we want to do better. And like, so me, my motivation would be because I want to see like the economics of Black people and my, my future family change in this country. But what is the motivation for someone who's non-Black to do that? Because I think that's kind of where the disconnect comes, where even if we did do that, like I'm wondering how far that would get us. I'm not saying we shouldn't, but we should still do it if we're the only ones even that do that. But how does someone who's not Black listening to this say to themselves, why should they get involved in this manner? Yes. So I agree. And this PhD model is is for everybody, right? It's, It's for everyone. It's for individuals. It's for Black. By the way, there's Black firms that don't do business with other Black firms, right? So it's for everybody. There's no one is is kind of beyond this kind of concept. Let's just talk about that $1.2 trillion. That is responsible for about 22 plus million jobs in the US economy, almost none of which are in our own community. So this is a massive portion, right? So we can have a lot of impact by small moves. The second thing is like the what I right now we have to put ourselves in in the mindset of others which is their position is you did this stuff to yourself based on the decisions that you made or didn't make. Because as I understand it, this is a land of opportunity and you work really hard, right? And I worked really hard and I got where I am and and you're not. So perhaps you should just work harder. And by the way, if I feel that the problems with the individual and not the environment, I got my own problems. I got to help you, right? Life ain't sweet for me type of thing. But that is because you associate the issues with the individual. And what I'm trying to help people understand through what I lay out in the book and the talks and the conversations is, no, it was, it's the environment that plays that role, right? It is not the people. The people are a product of the environments that they did not create. Now, it is very likely that others didn't know that because it's not what they were told. It's not what they learned in school, and that's not what they hear in their social circles. But you hear it now. So you can disaggregate the associating kind of the, the blame for the situation from the individual to understanding the environment. And then I'm saying, if you want to play a role, if you want to help, this is the way you do it, is you do it through economics. Like, let me let me give you an example. Remember, the, maybe like four and a half years ago or something, there was this march up and down, uh, was it 6th Avenue? After all the police, there was a slate of police shootings, right? Yeah. And it was like, you know, the numbers I heard was like 25 plus thousand people and arm in arm. And it was, it was a great moment of solidarity, right? It was, a, it was a beautiful thing. That's terrific. People look at that and they, they see, you know, 25 or 30,000 people or whatever the number was. I look at that and I see three to $4 billion to spend. That's what I see. And if you want to show 
solidarity and you want to have an impact, particularly on these socioeconomic things, the way you do it is by influencing supply spend that you have control over. You can buy cars from black dealers. You can use black realtors too. You can use black wealth managers and and accountants and attorneys and all of these different wonderful high quality services that we have here, which will never be outsourced by the way. You know what I mean? And you can do it today. And most people have never even thought about it. And I just want to introduce that to them because you help them and that helps their family and that helps their communities because we're very interconnected as a people. Now, that's just at what you can do as a household or an individual, but you might have some decision-making ability in corporations. You might sit on some boards. You might be working with some nonprofits. There's a lot of economic opportunities that our businesses could be pulled into if people see, here's how I can help because we've got a, a massive gap in jobs, right? Businesses. And, and capital. Providing liquidity to our businesses is imperative. You want to help? Do that. We've got 110,000 Black businesses. Up, They need about up to $9 billion of, of liquidity, right? Access to, to capital. And the vast majority of them said that they would hire people if they had those resources. And they employ a million people. Like, let's think about that and not just all of the other kind of visual stimulus that that we get in. If you're not creating jobs, businesses, and providing capital, to me, it's a shiny object. And we have had enough of of shiny objects. Yeah. You were going to talk about hiring as in part of the PhD model. Right. And that's just to what extent are we properly represented on the payrolls of various companies, governments, and and institutions, right? I I think we got to deal with the underlying issues because the underlying issues are people think we're at fault. People think that we are less capable. This could be conscious and unconscious. And when people believe that, it likely means that they're willing to deal with you in small doses. So if there's one or two of you present, mm, I, I can kind of deal with that. If there's a significant number present, it feels like something is wrong. Some better qualified people now are not here that should have been here, Right. Um, and that whole narrative is is incorrect, but it's pervasive. So you're going to have a constant level of resistance to it. And we have to deal with those fundamental issues so people can see that it's not a burden, right? There's the brilliance of the population that you don't have access to. There's a reason why they say you get better returns when you kind of have diverse presence of people on your, your payroll. And it's not because of the magic of diversity. It's because you're tapping into the brilliance of a population that you were excluding previously. It's not rocket science, but it is rocket science if you don't believe that. Yeah. The D is about deposits, right? So I'm an advocate for putting uh, deposits in, in Black financial institutions. You have to have financial institutions that provide liquidity, right, to you. It's necessary for, for any society, country, so so on and so forth. About $4 out of every $10,000 in the U.S. banking system is in a black bank. We just do not have enough deposits, right, in our banks to be able to lend to the population. And the challenge with the financial uh, industry is that there has been and still remains significant discriminatory practices. So the cost of capital is much higher and the availability of capital is much lower. And and other groups have more money in their banking system, so they can somewhat protect themselves from a portion of the discrimination that that they will feel and face. Yeah. And 
I love that you went through the PhD, like salute, like as a solution and what we can do. And one of the things that struck me is that you stress that we should be specific when we talk about helping Black people, because I think there has been a big push on helping minorities and people of color. And when we talk in that general sense, there are programs like, you know, a lot of programs that are directed to non-white people to help them. When I was in college, I was a part of the inroads program for minority students to help them get into Fortune 500 companies as interns. And it was great. I remember the first year um, I got in, it was like maybe like 50% Black people. And then maybe the other 50% were other people of color. And as I grew and I graduated and I started working full time, we would see now the pool of inroads um, interns. Hardly any of them were Black. Fine, right? Like there's still talented people of color that were getting chances, which was amazing. And there were, you know, other non-Black people who were given those opportunities for whatever reason. And one of the point out is that when we're not specific, when we kind of stay general with who we're helping, which again, we're not saying that p- women and other people of color don't also need the, the assistance, but it's just like when we do that, we still are not really impacting Black people the way we want to, the way we say we want to when, we, when we're so general. Yeah. So we have to be specific. Let me give you an example. So to crystallize it, and then we'll talk a little more. So if you look at you know the supply chain spend that I that I mentioned, if you looked at okay, how much is spent with black businesses, you know, Asian businesses, Latino businesses, and women businesses, which is primarily, by the way, white women, right? About 90% of all that economic revenue is driven by white women. So if you aggregate that entire group together, only four percent of it is for black businesses. That will be the diverse minority inclusive group that's non-white male, right? Four percent. Now we can talk about what people's intentions are. And and I, I do believe people have good intentions. But what I'm saying is your intentions and the outcomes are not aligned. So when you are not specific, these are the outcomes that you wind up with. 96% go to non-black people. Now, why do you have to be specific and why do you have this diversion of how resources are really allocated? The challenge is people don't realize that anti-group bias is not the same. The levels of intensity are actually different for different groups. There was a study that was done uh, a few years ago to look at like Asian populations have done so well, right? You know, they have an extraordinary appreciation for education and uh, and a drive and all the kind of, it's, it's, it's a part of the family and organization, all that kind of different stuff. They looked at that, and what they found was that's not the that's not the right, real driver. The real driver is the level of discrimination against them has been falling at over time. And in America, your ability to accumulate wealth is proportional to the level of bias that you face. And black people face the highest level of bias. The other people in this kind of non-white group, this minority group, they also have anti-black bias. And these are the things that we never speak about. And because we don't speak about them, we don't understand them. And because we don't understand them, the solutions that we design don't take it into account. You're never going to get the appropriate outcomes. And it was interesting. It's like when people are solving other types of problems, they're really good at it. They take all this stuff into consideration. When they're solving problems for Black folks, they tend to be less understanding the nu- the nuances of actually addressing the issue. 
So that that's part of the of the challenge. And and we know that when the programs are specific, that when they're well designed, well executed, and well funded, that they work. And at the end of the day, what does working mean? It means that it's creating jobs, it's creating more businesses, right? And that helps to create more liquidity within the community. At the end of the day, this is an enormous win and opportunity for, for everyone. That's why I focus on this, this notion of PhD. There's some people who aren't aware of the history, and they're not even aware that this stuff is still happening. And for those who now are aware and want to have an impact, this is how you can go about doing it right? Apply this framework and let that framework help you to understand the efficacy and impact of of what you're actually doing. Yeah. And it's so powerful because again, this is necessary, like a conversation for everyone to hear. It's necessary for me to hear because we as people have our own biases that are impacting us. And so it's at least to understand that. And to be honest, a lot of it is being like the honest conversations about being truthful about how we feel about things, I think is like a good start. And as you were talking, I'm thinking, is there like a specific, you may not know the answer, this may be a silly question, but is there a specific ban on why you can't have more specific direct programs just for Black people? Because I think what comes up for people is, well, then now you're excluding these other people that need help, right? These other races that also, you know, Latinas and other minority groups that still need help. And so people, the, the plain devil's advocate will say, well, now you're, you're excluding other groups and people who need help. So is there something that's stopping like more programs specifically for Black people? Yeah, you, you have a combination of the biases that are pervasive. And then you also have a combination of the law and how it's written. So prior to you, when you start getting into like the Civil Rights Act, where it's, it's fine to be discri- discriminatory against uh, Black people, there's a shift from racialized laws to non-racialized laws. So it it makes it difficult for people to be specific because if you're being specific and you're saying black, now you're being racial. And then the other thing that people don't understand is the definition or the composition of minority has changed dramatically over time, right? So if you you go back to, to 1940 and you ask like, they didn't really talk, minority so much at that time. It was more like coloreds and, and stuff like that, right? But if you looked at that non-white group, 97% of those people are Black. When you start getting into the 60s, like 1960-ish or so, right, you're at about 70% of Black. And in addition to the Civil Rights Act, you also have the Immigration Act, which dramatically changes the composition of, of the U.S., right? You have a huge influx of Latinos and Asians and, and much less people coming from Europe, right? A few more folks coming from like the Caribbean. But now that is 70% of that category is not Black. So the trauma and the economic exclusion was for Black people. But the majority of the inclusion is going to actually non-Black people. And people aren't dealing with the biases that are persistent across all these categories, and particularly the categories that are, are very economically powerful. And that's part of what people need to, to understand. People come here and they benefit from a minority program that they didn't know about because you're not white male. You know what I'm saying? And you're in this category called brown, colored by definition 1831. If you look at like the black codes, the slave codes, you know what I mean? They describe what a person of color is. As a person who has African blood, is what they call it. 
So the, the, that exclusion was was for them. But if you come to the country and you're like, wow, I, I can so I can do contracts with this stuff. There's something to, to help me. And that's great. But the, the problem is how are, how are black people are benefiting from that. And even when you develop and you are able to build your company through these vehicles or black people in your payroll or in your supply chain, are you providing any kinds of liquidity or do you feel the same way that society feels about these very people for whom you are benefiting? But it appears to you like it's based on your hard work because there's, there's no point where anybody's achieved success without hard work. Like hard work is actually just a background residence that's required. You can work hard in the desert. Your outcome is going to be a little different than if you work hard kind of in that rich, deep, beautiful soil out in kind of Iowa and the Midwest and those kind of things. So people need that that kind of context. At, at like what I said is like we own black people have been here 400 years, 2% of U.S. wealth. How is that possible? You have other people have come here and they have excelled. They've excelled because of access to programs that were designed to help correct economic exclusion for black people. And they have benefited from, from enormous resources, by the way, all of which is coming from capital that was extracted from black people and redeployed into the infrastructure kind of, of, of this country. And they're not aware of it. How they deploy their resources are in a way that tends to look, when you look at the numbers, as economically exclusive. So you're kind of compounding the problem. And now if you overlay on top of that, the fact that you didn't know all of this history and to you, it looks, and you've been told by the way this, and it looks like they're the problem. If only they would kind of get up and work hard. That's part of the, people say, look, we need to have a conversation on this. And I'm like, no, we need to be educated on it first, right? Because what kind of conversation is the uneducated going to have with the ill-informed? That energy and passion that immigrants bring, people from the South already have that. But you couldn't go to that school. You couldn't start. There were people who were murdered for attempting to do the, the American dream. Like if you, if somebody puts you under 100 years of that, you will adjust, right? People who come who don't go through all of that they're not aware of the differentials. They're like, oh, you have what I had. I just work hard. You just kind of not. And it's like, no, we need people to understand that because if they understand, then they can have more empathy. And understanding and empathy are very important to, to solving big problems. I remember I was in DC and I kind of watched this like uh, at the Capitol. It's like, like a 15 minute welcome to America type thing, you know, like the you know, the Puritans and then George Washington and, and Potomac and it's, it's like a little flash of slaves and then boom, they're free. And then boom, somebody's on a, a bus and it's a protest and then we're all good. There's so little information as to what actually transpired that it hinders people from, I think, acting in, in the good and positive ways that they would want to act if they had access to other information. So some of my, la- my my ending questions for you was like next steps. And I think for a lot of people, just the education of this is important. And so obviously getting your book, which I would love for you, like what made you decide that this was a necessary book to write? I'm, by the way, I'm so glad you wrote the book. I'm so glad that you are talking about the facts because I think that's what gets pushed back the most. 
are like, what, what's, what's the numbers? Like, these are just feelings. Like, this is just like perception. And so I think this book and this information is so necessary, but what made you decide that it was time for something like this? Because from what I know, I haven't seen anything else like this or a book written in this capacity that goes over all of this. So what made you feel like this was something you needed to do and get out into the world? Well, I started actually working on like personal financial management. You know, we have a lack of information on how to manage our resources. And it's because of all this trauma that we're kind of talking about. I wanted to be able to put something in place to help us do that more effectively. And I did that. I've written a book on it that's going to be coming out shortly. And and I had like classes and seminars and all this kind of stuff. And it's very powerful and transformative. You would love it. And it's like, now that we help you put yourself in a better situation, right, much stronger financially, when you deploy your resources and when you think about who you're doing business with, I wanted people to also consider doing business with Black Enterprise because it'll help create jobs, right? And it has this wonderfully positive ripple uh, effect through the whole economy. But what I know and understand is you can't start with, hey, you should just go buy and do business with Black Business. Because we don't want to, right? We talk a lot about it. But if you just look at where we spend our money, and if you talk to any kind of Black business owners, right, they can give you all kinds of stories, right, about that. So I wanted to create the most powerful case for commercializing Black enterprise that I could for everybody to do, right, us and and others. And it seemed like when we talk about doing business with each other, it's either in the form of like a philanthropy. You know what I mean? I'm going to support you, you know, all this kind of stuff where we don't talk about doing business with Prada and Fendi and all those places as a philanthropy, right? We, it's, we feel like it's an equal exchange for whatever product and, and the price, or it's almost like a cost or a burden. I, 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 you know what I mean? I, I'm, I'm a, I'll do something with you, right? I'm worried about your quality. I'm worried about all this kind of stuff, but it's a burden and a cost on me, but I'll do it. I'll take one for the team, right? <laughs> And I'm like, if you see it as a cost in any way, shape, or form, or a burden, then I want to show you what the cost is now and has been to juxtapose that. The other piece of it was that, you know how every six months, eight months, there's an article written about some study where they uncover discrimination in some marketplace, and it's almost remarkable. Whenever I read those studies, they always seem like a tax to me, to Black people whether it was in housing or automotive, you know? And I was just always like, I'm going to track these things and I'm going to come back and I'm going to look at this and aggregate it. And it just made sense to put those two things together. So I approached it as a tax. And then, you know, it's like when there's a loose thread on your sweater and you start pulling on it, it starts to unravel in some pretty amazing ways. So the the story that I started to see was it was pervasive, it was longitudinal, it was cumulative. And the realization that you will get is that the it never stopped. The story is told there was this bad event, slavery, Jim Crow, whatever, and it ended. And it's like, no, it it changes form, right? It it never stopped. Um, So that was kind of the the motivation was behind it. It was like a two-step part, which is how do we put ourselves in a better financial situation? And then, and then when we've done that and as we're doing it, let's do our best when possible, where possible, to just do business with high-quality Black uh, businesses because it just creates jobs. It's just a wonderful economic impact to, to the communities and to our, to our families. 
Wonderful. Okay. So Sean, please let everyone know where they can find more about you and get the book. And I'll try to link as much stuff as possible, but just tell people where they can follow you and what you're doing. The book is called The Black Tax, The Cost of Being Black in America. You can get that at www.blacktaxed. That's with an ed, past tense.com. So that's www.blacktaxed.com. You can follow me on, I'm on Facebook as well as I just started Twitter <laughs> and, uh, and on Instagram and also on uh, LinkedIn as well. Okay. I will definitely be linking all of that in the show notes, everyone. So Sean, thanks so much again for this powerful conversation um, that is necessary. And I'm so thankful that I could bring you on my platform to share this because I think everyone in the world needs to hear this. So I'm grateful for the work you've done so far. And I'm looking forward to more people uncovering and having the conversations and not just the conversation, but being educated first and then having the conversations about this stuff. So thank you. Thank you uh, so much for, for having me on. I greatly appreciate it and for this conversation, which I love to have, and I look forward to doing it again. Wow. So I hope you enjoyed and got a lot from that conversation with Sean. As he mentioned, you know, this is just a conversation, right? It's just, it's just a way to bring awareness and educate at this point. And that's for everyone. In the beginning, I said, I didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't feel like I had enough time to talk to him. I could have literally kept talking to him. This conversation is not one that just should be had once. And there's no solution that we can all do and come up with right away. But I do believe conversations and acknowledgement and just education around this is extremely important. And again, it's not just that black people need to hear this. I believe everyone needs to hear this. And so I'm excited that I was able to and honored, honestly, that I was able to have this conversation on the show. Now, I would love to hear your thoughts on what we talked about. So if you are following me on social media, I'm on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can tag me at Journey to Launch or find me and comment on the post where I usually post every week that I'm posting that the new podcast is out. Let me know what you thought. Tag me, share it. This is something that more people need to hear. And so this is another thing. I know I ask you guys all the time every week to share episodes, but if there's one episode I want you to share, I want you to share this one because I believe everyone needs to hear it. And I want more conversations happening about this. Again, this was episode 137. So if you want the episode show notes to find more about Sean, to get the book, to watch his Google Talk that I first watched that I was just so amazed by, go to journeytolaunch.com slash episode 137. There you will find all the links to some of the things that we mentioned. I'll also try to get links to the studies that he referenced. I think for me and for a lot of people, that's going to be really important because a lot of people are more factual. You know, you need stats based on not just our feelings about what's been happening, but what are the facts? And, and he, he shows that in the book and actual studies. And so if you want some of that, I'm going to try and get that on the episode show notes page. Again, make sure you're sharing this with family and friends and then also with me, what you thought of it. And then until next week, journeyers, keep on journeying. Bye. Bye.